BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The room that we're in right now is where we do the injections. We're moving a little bit more briskly and a little bit more efficiently, but it's not like corners are being cut. It's an awesome experience. This is something that obviously encompasses everyone in the world right now. I think that the vaccine is our most likely way of getting out of this. Eight months ago, COVID-19 rocked our world. Our best hope at getting anywhere close to back to normal is a vaccine. But developing the vaccine is only the beginning because from there, it gets even more complicated. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Brian. Hi, Amanda. Today is Tuesday, November 10th. We are here with Contact 6 investigator Jenna Sachs. Hi, Jenna. Hi, good morning. So you are talking about a story or an issue that I think so many of us have been waiting to get to because all year long it's been... COVID-19, it's been police community relations, it's been the election, but in the background all along has been that question of when is a vaccine coming and when, really the big question is when are we getting out of this pandemic, but it always seems to come back to the development of a vaccine. Where are we in that right now? Well, we're getting a lot closer. There are more than 150 preclinical trials underway and about 40 clinical trials underway. And we're starting to see some of the early results from those clinical trials. There was some very big news from Pfizer yesterday about some of their early results, claiming they were upwards of 90% effective in neutralizing the coronavirus. But we're starting to see uh, some of the research that's been underway start to pay off. And there is an effort underway to really rush these vaccines to the market to make them available as quickly as possible. And it's now looking like that may happen on a limited basis by the end of 2020, and maybe on a more widespread basis uh, well into 2021. Now, when we talk about this, a lot of times we say the vaccine or a vaccine, like we refer to it singularly, but the reality is we're going to have different manufacturers who have different vaccines. So how exactly is that going to work? Exactly. I spoke with uh, Dr. Jim Conway at UW Health, and I think he's one of the best people to talk to about this issue. He's the medical director of their immunization program. He's involved on a committee that's advising the state on how to distribute a vaccine. And he is saying that we're probably going to end up with a complete free-for-all of vaccines. He's predicting more than a dozen available. And the the truth is, at the end of the day, we have a lot of companies um, beyond the ones that we've heard about that are investing a lot of time and money and research into developing a vaccine. And they're not just going to want to walk away, not when there are billions of people in the world who will eventually need a vaccine, not to mention one vaccine is probably going to come in two doses. So there'll be something like 16 billion doses of vaccine that need to be administered if everybody gets it. So they don't want to just throw away all that research. And at the end of the day, 
This isn't a race to get the first vaccine. It's the race to get the best vaccine. So we don't know what's going to be the most effective. It might not be the first vaccine to hit the market. It might be one that comes six months later. Uh, we just don't know which one is going to last the longest when it comes to neutralizing the, the coronavirus when it gets into your body. Well, and Jenna, I know you're going to talk to here in a minute about just, you know, who's going to get them and how this is going to roll out in phases and all that. But I really wonder when we start to see these different vaccines being approved over time, if if you hear that one is we're getting early results already from one saying that their early data says it's 90 percent effective. If you hear that others are more like 50 or 60 percent effective, I would imagine most people are going to say, well, I want the one that's 90 percent effective. So if there are all these different vaccines out there, is there going to be sort of a demand for the best and therefore people who don't want the ones that are seen as less effective. Well, the thing is, we don't know what the long-term impacts of these vaccines are going to be and how long they're going to last and how long they're going to make people immune to the coronavirus. Part of the problem with uh, condensing the time of these studies and getting the vaccine to the market quickly is that we don't know if which one's going to last the longest and that might make it the best or we don't know which one may be the most effective in reducing symptoms until you reduce it to a general population. They're going to feel like they have a very good idea based in scientific fact, but until you introduce this to a general wide population, you don't always know what all the effects are going to be. But the, the immunologist I spoke with said the science is being done. They're asking people to trust the science and saying only when that is clear will the FDA get a shot at approving it. And safety is a top concern when it comes to this research. That's one of the first phases in the study is making sure that it's safe. But when these studies usually take eight to 10 years, and in this case, you know, we're getting things available after six months or so, it, it seems safe to assume that maybe the first vaccine won't be the most effective, but hopefully it will be safe. Well, and a lot of people do have questions about that safety, Jenna, because of that compressed timeline that you talked about. And at the beginning of this episode, you know, we heard from a doctor who basically said, yes, it's a more efficient process, but it's not like we're cutting corners here. So I'm wondering how you can speed up the process of the vaccine as much as it has been sped up without cutting any corners. At UW Health, they are overseeing part of the AstraZeneca trial right now, so they have some insight into this. Um, and Dr. Conway said they're doing their research in about six to 12 months, and he understands why people may be concerned about something that moves quickly. Dr. Conway feels like there were a lot of inefficiencies in past studies that you know they can make more efficient, but he also feels like they're being deliberate and treating this as an all-hands-on-deck situation, but he says at the end of the day, there will have to be FDA approval. There's something underway called Operation Warp Speed, which is removing the financial disincentives for companies to begin manufacturing vaccines. But he says there is going to be scientific review, and only when that science is clear will the FDA get a shot at reviewing it. And again, you know, what we're not getting is that long-term monitoring, but he's of the opinion that it's just to see how long it will be effective rather than, is it safe for me? He feels like they'll already have an answer on safety, even though it's a shorter period of time. So we've been looking, Jenna, at that question of when will the first vaccine be available? When will manufacturing and distribution of that uh, first approved vaccine begin? And, and we're hearing more and more that it looks like something may be coming before the end of the year, but that doesn't mean that you or I or Amanda are gonna be getting these vaccines before the end of the year. Who 
is first in line and how is this going to be sort of doled out over time? Well, there is some federal guidance, but mostly the states are being tasked with deciding themselves how they want to distribute vaccines. And Wisconsin has put out a plan. They are consulting with medical experts, trying to figure out the best course of moving forward. But they have basically two phases at this point. The first phase is essentially healthcare workers and people in long-term care facilities, people over age 65 and other specific essential workers. And then phase two moves on to other critical populations and eventually the general public. So you're right, not everyone is going to have access to this right away when it becomes available. It may still be some time for the rest of the general population. And in your story, Jenna, you mentioned there are other accessibility issues here. So for example, uh, you talked about how I believe it was the Pfizer vaccine that needs to be stored at really cold temperatures. And not everyone's going to be able to do that, right? So what are some of the other accessibility issues we have here? Well, in order to administer the vaccine, there needs to be a lot of supplies available. And this is going to probably be federally managed and distributed. But these hospitals need things that they already have, but they need them in large quantities. So syringes, needles, alcohol, prep pads, those are the the things that they're going to need a lot of. But the two leading vaccines so far from Pfizer and Moderna require ultra cold storage. This is storage in minus 80 degree Celsius freezers, which most places do not have. If you're a major medical center like UW Health or maybe the Medical College of Wisconsin, you're going to have it, but your average place isn't going to have these ultra cold freezers. So we're going to have to get them those. So they have to register with the state, let them know that they want to distribute the vaccine. And then it's going to be up to the government to help get them those freezers so that they can store the vaccine safely. I would imagine when this first starts rolling out, when the first vaccines are approved and and, and uh, distribution begins, that there will be far greater demand for vaccines than there is availability. So people are going to be sort of waiting in line and only those those high risk people, those people who are the essential workers uh, will be getting them. But over time, as it becomes more widely available, there's the question of people who say they don't want to get the vaccine. They don't trust it. They don't believe in it. How big of a concern is it for some of the people you've talked to that there won't be buy-in among a significant segment of the population? Uh, People who say, I just don't trust vaccines. I don't want vaccines. How big of a concern is that to some of the people who are, are looking to try to help end this pandemic? Dr. Conway thinks that is going to make the difference between whether this goes away in a year or whether it goes away in several years. He feels like everybody will need to get a coronavirus vaccine if we truly want this to go away. I asked him about herd immunity. He thinks that is not realistic. He thinks that would result in millions of deaths and it just doesn't make sense. So he's of the opinion that everybody is going to have to get vaccinated in order for us to return to life as we knew it before COVID, which is stadium events, really those big crowded events. He thinks we may not return to that until 2023 or later if people aren't willing to get vaccinated. Because at the end of the day, Uh, vaccines may only be 50% to 70% effective. And if not everybody gets it and herd immunity is say 30%, coronavirus is going to continue to circulate and circulate indefinitely. And we also have to remember that we are not the only country in the world. There are going to be other countries that have even more difficulty than us 
getting this vaccine to their people. And if we're traveling to those countries, it's just going to continue to circulate and circulate. So he's of the opinion that they really have to win the confidence of the people and convince everyone to get the vaccine so that we can return to pre-COVID life. So in order for this to be effective, does pretty much everyone have to get the vaccine? Is it like 80% of people have to get the vaccine? Is there a threshold at which, hey, this stops becoming effective when this many people don't get it? He's of the opinion that everybody will need to get it. I don't know if that's realistic. Maybe we'll always have some sort of coronavirus circulating. Um, I don't want to compare it to the flu because it's not the same thing, but it could continue to circulate to some extent like that. But he says, you know, if if we want to return to life, I mean, there's no vaccine that's going to be 100% effective. And he really wants everybody to sign up to get it. Well, and we talked, Jenna, about the coronavirus or COVID-19 as though it is a singular unchanging thing. But we know that these viruses change and mutate over time. That's why the flu vaccine is not the same vaccine every year. It changes um, and sometimes they they hit the right uh, notes and the flu vaccine is very effective. And sometimes they, they miss it because a strain comes out that just doesn't quite match. Is that also going to be an ongoing concern with COVID-19 that over time, the SARS-CoV-2 is going to mutate and change and they're going to be playing catch up with these vaccines. That is absolutely something they have mentioned and they are concerned about. So there, there's a lot of work underway to figure out how to get these COVID neutralizing antibodies into our systems and to get them to last long enough to prevent the coronavirus and its different mutations. I think you're right. I think they are going to have to keep looking at how they can modify their vaccine so that it remains effective. So, Jenna, you got a closer look at one particular trial, the AstraZeneca trial. How exactly is it working? So AstraZeneca is currently doing a number of studies across the world. They began in other countries and now they've moved to the U.S. They hope to get about 30,000 participants here in the U.S. They're at about 80 hospitals, including UW Health, which is still looking for another 1,000 volunteers or so. But basically, they are having people come in voluntarily. They go through some consent procedures, a lot of paperwork. They have a physical exam. They do some blood work. And then they get an injection in the arm. It's either a placebo or the vaccine that's under investigation. And they're going to get two injections about four weeks apart. And the staff is going to watch them for about 20 minutes or so for any adverse effects. And then they're going to go out, live their lives, and they monitor whether or not they develop COVID-19. Everyone who participates is asked to keep a diary. They're going to be occasionally giving blood samples. And they're going to be monitored for about two years to see how long those antibodies remain in their system. Jenna, you know, we talked about sort of how this is going to be rolled out in in phases and the first people to get the vaccines will be, uh, you know, medical professionals, doctors, nurses. It will be uh, the elderly, particularly those in long term care facilities. And then we hear that term that's been at times so controversial this year, essential workers. I say controversial because the definition of what is an essential worker can vary among, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to. Do we know who's going to be sort of considered essential workers for some of these early rounds of vaccine? Uh, Is that just starting with the medical community? Does it extend beyond that or do we know where it goes next? 
We really only know for sure that the medical community is included in that first phase and considered essential. I think there's going to have to be more direction given as to who is determined essential and who isn't. So we're still in the phase where they are developing their plans. Wisconsin has some plans available online, distribution plans for the vaccine. But as for the nitty gritty of who's essential and who's not, that's going to have to come later, it looks like. Jenna, what surprised you the most as you were looking into this story? Well, I think the thing that surprised me the most is when I asked Dr. Conway how long he thought we could be living like this. You know, our lives are very different now. I'm talking to you from home. We're not at work together. Um, There are no games at Miller Park. There are no football games. There was no state fair this year, no Summerfest. And when he said he thought it could be 2023 or later that life returned to the way we knew it, I found that rather alarming because we hear a lot about, you know, the vaccine becoming available in 2021. And we think that's going to be the magic bullet here. And we think it's going to go away all of a sudden. But it sounds like he thinks we're going to be wearing masks for some time. And there's going to be a period of whether or not people are getting the vaccine. And we'll have to see how effective it is in neutralizing the coronavirus and and whether that makes an impact on how we're able to go about our lives. Right. We keep personifying 2020 as a villain, right? Everyone's like, I can't (laughs) wait for 2020 to be over. But it's hard to imagine feeling that way about two entire additional years. And they may not be what we're living right now. It may just be some restrictions, but in terms of those big, major, crowded events, he just doesn't see how that's possible, you know, immediately. He thinks it could be years. I think when you when you look at the way this began, it was like flipping a switch. We went from normal life to a completely different life very quickly. And you guys all recall when we were doing stories back in March, everything we did was new. Everything we did was we have no idea what to expect or where this is going next. But we also thought that we were in the midst of a two week shutdown. We thought this was going to last a couple of weeks. And I remember looking at the early charts in some of the some of the organizations that track data and and publish charts. All of their charts were showing this peak and then a drop off back to zero. Like by the time May came around, we were all going to be back to regular life. I still remember plant making plans for Summerfest because I assumed I was going to Summerfest and some of the concerts that were there. We all thought that's what we were facing. But I get the sense even if these vaccines are are well ahead of a typical vaccine schedule, Jenna, that we are not looking at a switch flip back to life, whether that's in 2021, 2022, or 2023. This is going to be a gradual, I hate to use the word, grueling process. Um, It is not going to be the flip of a switch to to turn the coronavirus off. I agree with you. I think it's going to be slow. I think it's going to be tedious and we're we're all going to want to flip a switch and go back to things as they were, but it sounds like it's not going to be like that. I'm just thinking about everyone who postponed their weddings, you know, with oh. the the hope that next year large gatherings will be available. Um I I think that even if we have a large percentage of the population getting vaccinated, there's still going to be some hesitancy about gathering in a group of 150, 200 people. So I'm wondering how much of this we're going to have to get past our own psychological barriers, even when we have a widely distributed effective vaccine. Right. And it makes you wonder if this is something we're going to have to learn to live with to some extent, 
because as it sounds like no vaccine is going to work on 100% of the people. So to some extent, we may have to learn to live with a little more risk. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult stuff to predict. And I mean, could we have predicted that we'd still be doing this, you know, in November? I thought I'd be leaving my office for a few months at the most back in March. And, and here we are still at home. We were just talking about Brian's fridge back at the office and yeah, we're wondering well, if that ever got emptied. So I, I got to, I have some answers because yesterday, <laughs> and I, I still have not been back in the building, but it was strange. So yesterday, um, uh, one of our managers had to help me because I was looking for a DVD that uh, relates to a story. It's a story I did last year, but I need the video for a story I'm working on right now. And, and I, I didn't know where it was in my office, and I haven't been in there since March. So I asked this manager, it's Brian Graham. He walked, what he went, he, he took, he took, uh, you know, his phone and essentially walked around with a video pointing at things in his in, in my office. And I said, well, look in there, look in that drawer, look over there, look in that drawer. And as he swung around, I saw the mini fridge. Oh, no. And I said, oh, Brian, has anyone oh, no. cracked that open since March? And he said, hey, I took care of it. No worries. I cleaned it out. And I, I had this <sighs> great sense of relief. And then he went to open it and he went, well, maybe I didn't get everything. And there were a few <laughs> things, there were a few things in the door Thankfully, all the sort of plasticware that would have had the really grotesque stu Ugh. stuff that was more sensitive had been thrown out. But there's still, you know, there's some like salad dressings and, and some Greek yogurt that I'm pretty sure oh, that's no. that's pretty bad. He didn't seem to be overwhelmed by a noxious odor. He didn't have to go to the emergency room. So we feel we feel OK about that. But uh, no, it, it's it, it was weird, though, because as he's showing me my office. This is the office I've occupied for years that I would go to every single day, and I haven't seen that thing in seven months. And it was strange. It was like seeing a relic of a past part of my life, and I realized I still work for that place. It's not like I quit, left, or was fired. I just haven't been there, and, and I don't still know when I'm going to return. I'm sure we all have similar feelings right now. Well, Amanda and I recently were asked to uh, do some fill-in anchoring. We got an email, and th the thought to me was, "Well, maybe I could see my office if they if they let so you'll us volunteer. Go you'll volunteer for some bad holiday hours just for a chance to see your office again. Maybe I'm thinking about it just to see how everything is. Some fond memories. Not to not to get us too much off this, but Jenna, I am wondering because you know that records are my thing. So I am wondering what kind of records we're going to have about how effective this vaccine is as it's administered. Because I think in our minds, you know, the vaccine's developed and then it's done and then we're good. But as you've made clear throughout this entire episode, this is going to be a, a long process. And part of this is going to be figuring out how effective the vaccine is, how long it lasts. So what kind of record keeping are we going to have surrounding that? That, that's where the individual hospitals and clinics are going to have to step up too and keep track in their own records of how effective it is. And if people are getting sick or if they're developing any adverse impacts from the vaccine, the hospitals and the clinics are going to play a role in this too and showing how the vaccine worked in their, their, their patients. And one thing about this vaccine that they're really trying to do, at least in the AstraZeneca vaccine trial, is they want to get it to a diverse group of people in their study subjects. They want to have people from all different racial backgrounds, all different ages, so that they know how it's effective in certain populations because we want it to work for everybody. And so, um, yeah, it'll be up to those clinics and their patients to play a big part in this too. 
Well, before we go here, I just want to say, ladies, it was wonderful getting to actually see you in person for our election coverage because it was, as you pointed out, Jenna, the first time we had been together uh, in a room, the three of us, since uh, the beginning of this whole thing. And it might be that many months before we are again. So it was nice seeing you in person, but it's always good to have you together back here on the podcast as well. Thanks, Brian. All right. Well, we're going to continue bringing you these twice weekly episodes of Open Record uh, as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic. I guess I don't have to say presidential election anymore, although we're still covering the fallout yeah, from the election. Yeah, you can still say presidential yeah, election. I, I, I guess so. Police community relations, that's an ongoing issue. There's so much more we'll be talking about. Uh, so the COVID-19 pandemic is just a part of it all. But if there's a topic you want us to discuss here on Open Record, an issue you think we should investigate further, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. That is F-O-X, the number six, investigators at fox.com. As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. As always, thanks so much for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Thursday. Thursday.